0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hilary Harper here. Hello. There's something about putting the words birth and plan together that makes many midwives chuckle. For one of my births, we went in for a routine scan at 32 weeks and had to call mum and say, actually, can you get down here? Because we're having that baby right now. You'll hear some of the incredible diversity of birthing stories on Life Matters today and the decisions that people were glad they'd made when they were able to make choices. We're coming to you from NAM, Melbourne. When you have a baby, everyone has an opinion about how it should go. So how do you decide what the right choices are for you? The ABC's been asking for people's experiences of giving birth in Australia. Brave. And we've received over three and a half thousand submissions. You'll be hearing some of those stories across all our channels in coming months. But right now on Life Matters, we want to hear from you. When it comes to pregnancy or birth, what decision are you glad you made? Dr. Zoe Bradfield is a Senior Midwifery Research Fellow at Curtin University and the Vice President of the Australian College of Midwives. Zoe, welcome.
2: Thank you, Hilary. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: It's going to be a really interesting discussion, I reckon. And with us too Mm. is Carla Anderson. She's a principal clinical psychologist at the Perinatal Child and Family Hub, which is a group of psychologists and other specialists located in Queensland. Carla, great to have you with us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Now, that expertise is going to come in handy soon when we talk about how to navigate the choices available to us within the health system. But let's start with Tanya Ha. She is a science communicator and has also had a range of different experiences as a mother. Tanya, welcome.
4: Hello. Thank you for having me.
1: Great to chat with you again. Now, you were quite young by today's standards when you had your first child in your early 20s. Tell us about um, your expectations versus reality in that first experience.
4: Well, you know, birth plan, how about life plan? It was sort of like I got married quite young at 20 and then, oops, I was pregnant at 22. So, um, that didn't quite go to plan. (laughs) But um, my first child I had um, when I was 23. So, unplanned but, you know, a a good birth Um, and, you know, really rather quick and that was through the shared care program in Victoria, so in Melbourne, where it was a combination of my GP and the local maternity hospital. My second child a few years later was planned, but it didn't go well. It didn't go to plan. So she was born, Lily, my second child was born prematurely um, and had a lot wrong with her. She lived for an hour. And that was a birth that was 28 weeks so it involved labour, it involved pushing and those things but I knew that I wasn't going to take a child home. Then a few years after that my third child was planned and it did go well so I had a son called Archer um, and the the two that have survived are now kidults, they're now grown-ups um, and I've Live to tell the tale, <laughs>
1: but Tanya, what was it like going into that third birth, having had you know two such starkly different experiences? And I guess I'm asking, what are your, what were your expectations and your your hopes for the decisions that you'd be able to make in that third birth?
4: My expectations would not have any really, like to keep it open, and and like I always I always find that phrase, "I'm expecting," really act because. You know, you can say I'm I'm expecting a delivery today, like, or I'm expecting to arrive in interstate on such and such a date. But when we talk about pregnancy, we just say we're expecting, and there's sort of this, you know, pause afterwards because we don't really know what we're expecting. <laughs> and and I think that after having had difficult experiences and you know and, and tragedy, like I, I knew that I when I was I knew I wanted to have another child, but I had to be recovered enough physically and recovered enough emotionally to be able to, you know, be ready to be a parent to a second child as well as cater to the needs of a first and also emotionally strong enough to be able to cope if things went wrong again. Um, the, The advantage that I had was... After I lost my second child, uh, everything had been investigated. So my then husband and I went through all sorts of tests and and the child had an autopsy and we tried to work out what went wrong. And it was one of those things that um, you can't really pinpoint a cause. These things just happen. But I had knowledge that most expectant mothers don't have, expectant mothers and expectant fathers, in that, They looked at us biologically, genetically and said, look on paper, there is no reason why you shouldn't have another healthy pregnancy, healthy child and healthy birth, just like you did with your first child. It's just that sometimes things go wrong and we don't always know why. So I felt comfort in that knowledge, um, but also just understood that there are no guarantees.
1: Well, I did wonder whether being so steeped in science, I mean, you're a science communicator by trade, would help or hinder your ability to go with the flow during those births.
4: Oh, absolutely helped. Absolutely. Um, But also, like I worked out really quite early, like my first pregnancy with Jasmine, I, I had a textbook in my shelf still called The Developing Human that I'd sometimes look at because it'd say like, you know, your baby's the size of a goldfish this week kind of thing, that interesting stuff. But it also had all of the things that typically go wrong with graphic illustrations at that stage. And the thing is that, I had to then have my science brain kick in and say, "This is a numbers game. You know, this is one in a gazillion might happen to this, and the likelihood is it won't happen to you." And so that understanding that stories are stories, like they're just you know a sample of one, and just because something has happened to you or something has happened to your best friend or your mother doesn't necessarily mean it will happen to you. So I think it's that tempering what you read about in, you know, the information that you get, with stories you hear from other people. And then also I think, you know, the, the ability to just, I mean, for me, um, the science of it was just fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a joy in, I mean, I'm the kind of person that I um, I tend to turn everything into an educational opportunity. And I think one of the best decisions I made was that, you know, when I say that I made the the decisions you make can be decisions we make. Um, One of those decisions was to include my then-husband in in as much as I possibly could. So, poor guy, he got the educational opportunity at every <laughs> stage of it. <laughs> but just also that, uh, you know, we would talk through and discuss the, the birth plan or scenario planning or tree diagram because my birth plan, of course, was, you know, had contingencies. It was like a tree diagram. It was very complicated. And if this happens, then this, but if that happens, then that. And, like, I'd, I found it interesting. I found it fascinating, but I didn't make it definite expectations that this has to happen or I'm not going to be happy
1: Yeah,
4: and I included my husband in as much of that as possible
1: That's been a really interesting thing, we've noticed that there's a lot of uh, men commenting on the Facebook post we put up about this and that's been a shift we think in, in the amount of involvement men feel they're able to have in the birthing process, we'll talk about that with our guests in a moment. Tanya Hart, just finally, I understand another good decision you felt you'd made was to hire a TENS machine, tell us yes. what that does and why it was good <laughs>
4: Well, that came from, you know, like, I mean, I, I'm, you know, yes, very yay science. Like the, doing a science degree and doing like studying physiotherapy before that, it's it wasn't just useful for careers. It was just really useful life information and things like that. And I'd learnt about in physio, I'd learnt about these TENS machines. Those of you who play sport might know of them. They're, they have these little electrode pads that if you put four of them on your body so that two currents cross over, so it's sort of like an X shape, then where they cross over, you get this buzz. And it's good for pain relief with sore muscles. But when you put that um, those electrodes so they cross over certain parts of your spine where the nerves are going through to your brain, then that buzzing can kind of clog up the phone lines so that the you know the, the nerves that are in your body down in your uterus that are saying, ouch, if you clog up the phone lines with, oh, there's this really weird buzzing happening, then that can reduce the perception of pain in your brain. And I'll, I'll get the midwives to say whether I've you know <laughs> explained that properly or not. But the thing that, like, that was... They've got those in some hospitals. You can you can go in and have them put on. But there's another effect that they do, which is to stimulate your body to produce endorphins, which your body's natural painkillers. But that takes a while. So armed um, with that knowledge, I thought, I can just hire one. And the second I've got any sign that I might be going into labour, I'll just work on the tens and get it buzzing away so that hopefully by the time I'm pushing, I've got the endorphins flowing through my system. So yeah, it's an obscure one based on some you know niche knowledge. Um, but yeah, I did that with each of my births.
1: Well, you mentioned everyone's story about birthing being something that we carry with us into the, the suite or the home or the bath or wherever we're doing it. Everyone's story <laughs> yes. is different. And I can't wait to hear more of these stories about the thing that you decided that, that you were happy with, you look back and you think, I'm glad we made that choice. That phone number 1300 three hundred double two double five seven six. Tanya Ha, thanks so much for telling us about how it went for you and for telling us a bit about Lily too.
4: Okay, thank you.
1: Tanya Ha, science communicator, and uh, as you can hear, you know, uh, has had experience of very different kinds of birthing. And that's true for a lot of us, isn't it? You know, one of them would go really well, one of them would be very tricky, one of them would shoot out in 10 minutes. It can be such a, such a kind of lucky dip having a birth in Australia. I'd be very interested to hear of all the decisions that were available to you, because some of them can just disappear into thin air when you when you get there, get to that point of, of going into labour. Which decision are you really glad that you made in hindsight, Michael's in Sydney. Michael, welcome to you. Looking back, what what are you glad that you did?
5: Hi there. Yeah, well, we had our son uh, in a hospital and some doctor interventions sort of led us to an emergency cesarean. And after that, through um, our daughter, we decided we wanted to have a, a home birth. So it was um, really probably the best decision that we, we made. I, I had so much fun. Our son was there and... Um, Two years later, um, I still talk to strangers about how much fun I had having our, having, a birth, having, having our daughter at home.
1: And so were the medical circumstances different for your son and your daughter? Were you kind of uh, confident that, that the home birth would be safe?
5: Um, yeah, relatively. I mean, yeah, the, the we had some midwives there. We had two midwives plus my sister, who's also a midwife. She was there um, and she videoed the whole thing, which was great, um, but... My, actually my daughter was probably a bit more complicated. She only had one kidney, which is not really a major complication, but it was still a concern and but the midwives were confident that it was all gonna be okay and yeah, it was a it was a great experience.
1: Oh fantastic. So it was a family affair. That's great to have a midwife in the family.
5: <laughs> it is definitely, definitely.
1: Excellent. Oh well, thanks for thanks for your perspective, Michael.
6: Thanks
5: very much, Hammer.
1: Anna also in Sydney.
6: Hello. Hi.
1: Hi. What went well for you?
6: Um, I had a really positive birth experience and I think the main part was similar to your earlier caller. It was an education um, opportunity and we did a birth course. I won't mention the name of it, but different to other birth courses, it was run by midwives. Um, It's a private course, but it's a bit of a family affair, but they're all midwives. And um, that actually meant that they didn't just only focus on you know a vaginal birth they they focused they also told you about what happens in a cesarean why you might need one might might be a good thing um, That's handy to know if you there. do
1: end up needing one isn't yeah, it just to be that's right. informed
6: Yes Exactly and it told you all about the sort of chemical processes that go on naturally with hormones but then also what the synthetic hormones do
1: So you 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 felt really well prepared for any eventuality
6: Exactly yeah really really educated as to what all those processes were going to be. And then it also helped you understand, like in my case, I had a couple of medical things in my background, so it allowed me to know, okay, well, I definitely don't want to go down that route, but I could go down this route, you know. So, yeah, it was really just about being really well-informed. And again, my partner was very involved.
1: And so did you feel at the time that that having that information helped you feel more confident about what was happening, whatever
6: did happen? Yeah. Yeah, it, I felt very confident and very much in control. And when I've spoken to other friends who had very different and sometimes very negative experiences, I think it was because they they felt like they once they got into the full um pre-labor feelings, they they just weren't didn't know what to expect anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I- they
6: would go with whatever was being told to them at in the moment as opposed to feeling like they'd already kind of scripted out the various ways that it might happen.
1: Yeah. Control Um, was one thing I felt was completely absent from all my experiences of birth, but it sounds lovely.
6: Yeah, it, it didn't for me. So I think it was just because this group of this particular birth course that was run by midwives, you know, educated people, she'd just come off the back of a birth that night in a hospital, you know. So she did it every day and... I just felt very informed.
1: We'll have a chat soon, I think, about the accessibility of uh, alternatives to the birthing suite at the hospital and and access to midwives. Anna, thanks for your call. Meg in Adelaide is next. Meg, you wanted to talk about midwives in a sense too.
6: Yeah, yeah. I had the same midwife um, for my pregnancies and just that continuity of care was just made such an enormous difference. It was... I think key to to having such a positive birth experience for me.
1: Yes, good to hear. Meg, thank you. A uh, text message on the TENS machine, maternity TENS machine machines, yes, many exclamation marks. Had one for both of my labours, even better than a bath, actually better dollar-wise to buy them than to hire them. Also, you need to have a maternity TENS, not just a regular TENS. Good advice, thank you. Let's check in with our guests. Dr. Zoe Bradfield is a Senior Midwifery Research Fellow at Curtin Uni and the Vice President of the Australian College of Midwives. Carla Anderson is Principal Clinical Psychologist at the Perinatal Child and Family Hub. We've been hearing some stories already. Carla, we can have a lot of expectations about what a pregnancy should be like. Why do we have such rigid expectations sometimes? I mean, have millennia of birthing taught us nothing?
3: Oh, I think that, that it's where those expectations come from and this is, you know, there is so much information out there now on whether it be social media or the media and I think that for a lot of families, one of one of my mottos when I'm working with families is how do you really feel um, because often we don't see... Um, those behind the scene kind of feelings and fears and worries and things like that. So what we see portrayed by other people is quite different a lot of the time to what reality can look like. So I think that that um, can have a big impact on where those expectations come from.
1: Do you have tips for people managing expectations in a healthy way? I mean, everyone's got hopes and dreams for how their birth might go, but, but do you are there ways that you can talk to people about how to change their expectations if things don't go to plan?
3: Definitely. And they're actually just listening um, to the last few speakers. Some of the key themes that I've been hearing um, spoken about are things like knowledge. You know, I I just say knowledge is power. Try to get that knowledge from really reputable places, um, which then makes you feel confident and it makes you feel in control. Communication, you know from that real, whether it be with the medical professions or more importantly, that in within the family. So taking that whole family approach, I think, is really different, dif- uh, really different to what we're used to. And, you know, there's been always such a focus, I guess, on, you know, how do we, with that physical um, experience for the, birthing person. And so it's thinking about how do we take that whole family approach and focus on the non birthing partner as well, or whatever other support people are there to help you going know, to increase that knowledge and that confidence.
1: It, it, I was mentioning to Tanya Ha before that we've noticed a lot of comments on the Facebook post we put up uh, from uh, male partners of the, the birthing uh, parent, uh, you know, talking about the decisions they would made jointly. And we're wondering if that's a shift that you've seen in recent years or decades that men feel more informed and more involved and more able to be part of the process. Definitely. Like,
3: that is definitely. Definitely a shift that um, we have seen here, whether it be dads or non-birthing partners. That there's definitely a big shift in terms of how do we support them as well, and how do we involve them in, you know, preparing for birth and parenthood.
1: That's where I think it's so important that we take that whole family approach. Indeed, uh, Dr. Zoe Breadfield. What sorts of choices should people be thinking about when they get pregnant?
2: Oh, Hillary, thank you. There's so many and it's really lovely to hear those stories uh, from your callers and, and, you know, lovely to hear the joy in Michael's voice still um, many years later about the decisions and, and the joy that that's brought um, and from all of your your, your callers. Look, there, there's so many um, decisions that need to be made. The reality is um, we don't have time to cover them all here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, look, I think what's probably really important is some of the early decisions that we make that can actually, um, you know, put us on a trajectory that we make not be aware of Um, and so really important to engage with those decisions and I think two of the most critical decisions um, some of your callers have already alluded to which is place of birth and model of care so often what happens you know we'll go to Coles or Woolies and and do a pregnancy test and are pregnant so we head off to, to find some confirmation and to start a raft of kind of assessments and then the question comes you know do you know where you want to give birth or do you have private health insurance and that sets people on a, on a trajectory um, you know that the, the evidence shows us around the outcomes that are associated with those particular models or settings um, and I think they're really important critical first questions to kind of be considering and really great to hear that some of your callers have already um, benefited from those conversations.
1: How early should we do we need to think about those Zoe? I mean is it hard to shift from one model of care to another if you change your mind a few months down the track?
2: It certainly can be and particularly for those models that are offering continuity of care um, and when we're talking about place of birth as in where I might actually want to give birth for example in a birth centre, um, those those models and those settings can book out quite quickly and we find that demand often outstrips supply and so we have some people you know, contacting as early as 8, nine, ten weeks um, of pregnancy to, to book a spot into those places just so that they can secure them.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, so many texts coming in on this. We might, we'll talk much in much greater detail about access and choice in model of care soon, but I want to quickly go to a call from Fred in Townsville. Hi, Fred. Hi, Hilary. What was the decision Hello. that you were happy about? I'm well, thanks.
7: I, was, um, I chose to be with my wife for both births, but the hospital would not allow me for the first one so I was there for hours and then the last minute I was sent away oh. um, the second one even though I struggled to stay on my feet I was there and it made such difference so to how I perceived you know my daughters though both uh, both loved them both but I'm uh, just more aware that she was mine but a second.
1: That's really interesting, Fred. So it had such a powerful impact on, on your relationship with, you know, within the family.
7: I don't think it affected my relationship. It was just an awareness that I had. Yes, she really is mine, whereas, oh, this could be any but it didn't make any difference to how I loved them.
1: And what about your relationship with your wife, Fred? Because often I think the the hospital staff would say, oh, the husband doesn't need to see the wife in that condition. You know, it's better if, he, if he's spared that. What were your thoughts on that?
7: I believe that my wife was very happy that I was trying to be there for both and disappointed that I wasn't there for the first one. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's an amazing thing to have your partner there. Fred, thanks so much for sharing that story with us. Okay, thanks. Thanks for your call. A quick text. Hi, Hilary. My mother joined the Bathurst Hospital Board in the 70s and introduced men being able to attend births. She also banned smoking in the hospital. Ooh, that would have been big at the time. This was after she'd lost one child due to being an unmarried Irish Catholic. That child, incidentally, says our texter, had a good life and is a new sister. And she'd also lost one child to cot death. I wonder if that affected her decision. Uh, We're speaking about birth stories and the decisions available to you and the ones that you are glad that you made in hindsight. And Naz Campanella has seen this, I guess, from both sides of the journalistic coin. She's the national disability affairs reporter at the ABC and a mum. Naz, welcome back to Life Matters.
8: Hi Hilary, thanks for having me.
1: It's a pleasure. Now I understand the decision you made that you're happy about is the model of care that you chose. What was it?
8: That's right. So I had talked a lot about models of care with friends I'd gone to see, you know, private obstetricians and chatted to a few different people before getting pregnant. And and that was important for me because as a woman with disability, I've got a neurological condition and I'm blind. I wanted to be well informed before going into the journey and making the decisions. And when I found out I was pregnant about 2 hours later, I called my local hospital and tried to get on to the midwifery group practice high-risk program and I did that so quickly. It was one of the first phone calls I made because I knew that the positions on that that program were so few and far between, but that was a decision that I am so happy I made and that was a really good model for me, that continuity of care throughout the nine months and also after birth as well was just imperative.
1: Well, yeah, just being sent home with a tiny baby is just utterly terrifying. But tell me more about why you felt it was so important as a person with a disability to have that extra level of care. What had you heard or seen or experienced in health systems that made you feel that uh, it was not going to necessarily support you otherwise?
8: There were a couple of things. I mean, I've been in and out of the hospital system for a very long time. I'm now almost 35. And so I've got quite a lot of experience with doctors, nurses, et cetera. And it's not to say that any one person has been terrible, but as a collective over time you'd become traumatised. Like even the smell of hospital, the noises, it, it really does put a sense of fear in me. And I think it has become over time just that collective experience of being in hospital, not really understanding, particularly as a child, why you're there, what you're having done and why it's important to be there and have those procedures. But also I don't think that even as a teenager and and into adulthood that anyone really took the time to explain to me, t- to, to really look at my needs and For those needs in a hospital setting, and I knew that I didn't want to go and see a different person for my pregnancy each and every appointment. I wanted to make sure that I had the same person so I didn't have to retell my needs, retell my story, talk about how I lost my vision, all that sort of thing over and over again. It's re traumatizing for people with disabilities, so I definitely didn't want that. I also wanted just the same team so that we could work up a plan together. Like I was in this for the first time not knowing anything about pregnancy and babies, not even knowing whether I'd feel fetal movement because my neurological condition impacts my sensitivity. So that was an unknown for me and it was an unknown for my team because while they had 25, 30 years experience in midwifery, they'd never cared for a woman with disability before. So we were all learning together and... I wanted the same team to, to be with me on that journey.
1: Yes, indeed. Well, I, I, reading some of the stories from this big call out the ABC's done for different birthing experiences in Australia, there are some heartbreaking tales from people with disability of, you know, health professionals questioning their ability to even be good parents, you know, the, the very choice to have a child. Mm, Is that something yeah. that you encountered, Naz?
8: Me, personally, no, um, but I had heard stories of, for example, deaf women giving birth without Auslan interpreters present, uh, autistic women feeling very overstimulated during, you know, the the, the birthing um, process because their needs weren't catered for, and you imagine bright lights noises lots of people it's busy it can be frantic and stressful and loud uh, that's that's terrifying for anyone but if you're an autistic woman and and that stuff um really gets you overstimulated um that can be really really triggering and awful and so I'd heard lots of stories about that and then in particular women with intellectual disability having their fitness to be a parent assessed pretty much as soon as they'd had their babies they'd turn up with a you know a social worker at their bedside one thing I definitely did is at my very first appointment with the midwife and and high-risk obstetrician in the program was I stated the fact very early on I do not want a social worker turning up to my bedside at any stage unless I request it. And I think they were taken aback a little bit. I think they were quite um, surprised that I thought that that would happen. But once I explained to them the experiences that friends of mine had had, they understood why I said it. But I think they were also quite shocked and, and a bit disappointed that that had been the experience for other people. But for me, it was a way of saying, this is what I want and this is what
1: needs to be followed. And if it's not, there'll be trouble. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you mind me asking, Naz Campanella, how did the birth go in the end for you?
8: Look for me it needed to be an emergency cesarean we had what's called abnormal dopplers at a 36 week scan so the, the placenta wasn't working quite as as doctors had hoped so i was quickly admitted to hospital had lots of um, monitoring over the next couple of days and then it had to be an emergency cesarean and it was the most beautiful hospital experience i have ever had and mm. i know you know being awake during a procedure like a cesarean it's it's you know not the most pleasant but i had The most beautiful team talking me through everything, holding my hand, asking me for what I wanted in place before I went into theatre. It was the first time I went into theatre not trembling with anxiety and fear. It was just a calming, almost tranquil experience. And it was all made possible by the beautiful team that I had around me.
1: That's fantastic. You got to rewrite some narratives internally as well, it sounds like.
8: And it meant they got to learn so that the next time they do have a mum with disability coming through, they know exactly what to do. They know that they should whip out an individual care plan, talk to the person about their support needs, their requirements, what scares them, what excites them, what makes them nervous, what they're worried about during the birthing and pregnancy process and also what they're worried about post as well and put some really good mechanisms in place to help mum and bub and partner if, if they have partner um, feel really comfortable about the process.
1: Yep because once you have the baby you realise pregnancy was kind of a blip and now there's the rest of your lives that you have it to do. It absolutely
8: is and now the mum of a 15 month old who is climbing, running, walking loud as anything I can say it's a little trickier once <laughs> they're on the other side
1: but so much fun. Indeed. Naz Campanella thanks so much for chatting with us today. Pleasure. Naz is the National Disability Affairs Reporter at the ABC. Well, let's talk about some of the issues that has raised before we go back to our calls. Uh, Dr Zoe Bradfield, if I'm from a diverse background or perhaps I have a disability, how do I find someone who will respect my decisions and make sure that that individualised support is there?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, ideally all health professionals would be able to provide individualised um, support and care, but um, NASA's story beautifully exemplifies exactly what we're talking about in terms of selecting models of care. Um, and so there's a few you know, different ways that you can receive care, and um, primarily that's around electing who will be your lead maternity carer or your primary maternity carer. Um, and certainly continuity models um, you know, and continuity of midwifery care is the, the model that is associated uh, with all... All of the improved outcomes um, that, that we know in terms of you know physical health outcomes, but also in terms of the sense of what we're talking about today, in terms of being known, knowing what my priorities are, what is important to me, what I'm particularly um, concerned about or, or wanting to avoid, or indeed the other way, things that I absolutely you know really want to achieve. Um, and then your uh, midwife can work in partnership with you to help you to um, begin to optimize your health states so that. That you are more likely to achieve the things that you want and then um, also more likely to avoid the things that, that you're wanting to avoid. But even when, um, you know, we're, we're talking through pregnancy in terms of optimising your health state, um, you know, uh, addressing disadvantage that might be experienced by others, These having a person that you know, having your midwife know you right throughout your journey uh, enables you to build that trusting relationship where you can be confident that the, the advocacy that you're seeking will be um, provided to you, uh, that you're able agency and your autonomy will be respected because of this respectful trusting relationship. So continuity of midwifery care really is key for all, all people who are um, in this state, but particularly those who um, may experience disadvantage or or um, need a, a particular form of advocacy.
1: Yes, which makes it startling that it sounds like it's harder to access for a lot of people in that situation. Just before we get into that proper, uh, Carla Anderson, what advice do you have if you if you know what you want to happen, but you, you feel perhaps that those uh, decisions and needs are not being respected. Whether, particularly, I guess, whether that's in a hospital setting.
3: Oh, definitely, I think it is about uh, communication. It's about knowing who is in your support network because you know. I think once people feel like they've got some autonomy and control over that, that can make them feel quite safe and be quite a protective factor. So I think with all the things that have been talked about so far, in terms of those supports that are around them, they're all the things that I think are really important to help navigate when um, things might not be going to plan.
1: Yes, indeed. Zoe Bradfield, continuity of care is something that's just come up over and over again in this discussion on Life Matters. Mm. Uh, How hard is it to access in Australia?
2: Oh, look, the good news is that it is uh, becoming easier, but it's still we know that it, it represents probably 20% of um, uh, births are, are provided care with continuity of midwifery care. Uh, the, there are pockets of Australia where there are particularly, um, you know, more higher rates of challenge and uh, those living in rural areas often uh, are, you know, more disadvantaged from that perspective and that is an area where we need to to be investing. Um, The reality is we know that continuity of midwifery care, you know, is associated with all of the good outcomes that we've talked about in terms of, you know, improved vaginal birth rates, you know, a reduction in unnecessary cesarean sections. Um, We're looking at 24% reductions in preterm birth risk Um, and for First Nations women, that risk, um, you know, is reduced by half, a 50% reduction in preterm birth uh, risk for First Nations women who receive uh, continuity of midwifery care. So it is really important. Uh, These are just some of the the physical outcomes that we're seeing for mums and babies. But of course, the psychological and emotional ones that uh, your callers have so beautifully spoken to about um, today, those are also realised and so improved maternal satisfaction. We also have improved workforce retention and we also know that it's 20% cheaper. So we are working around the country to to lobby the government to improve access to increase the access to continuity of midwifery care, acknowledging all of the benefits that are derived from it, and the fact that women just so clearly want it, and that's really clear in the in the stories from the men and the women that have called in today.
1: Yes, indeed. Well, and a lot of people on our Facebook page and and in our text line are saying, you know, best decision I ever made was to hire a private doula. Best decision I made was to hire a private midwife. But you know, we're looking at five, ten, twenty thousand dollars in some cases for that. What happens, Zoe, if you're, say, in a regional area or um, a First Nations woman, perhaps in a regional area, uh, how easy is it to access care that's uh, close enough to you and culturally safe as well?
2: Mm. So I live in Western Australia, so, you know, the most geographically diverse state that we have. And um, we are seeing in many of our rural areas, particularly those in regional centres, that are are beginning to stand up continuity of midwifery care or group practices where women can receive uh, continuity of care by the same midwife, but who might also be working in a group of midwives that they uh, might meet throughout their pregnancy as well. Um, So it is encouraging to see, you know, certainly some of those larger rural centres beginning to expand continuity. continuity of midwifery care access. The reality is um, there's just simply not enough yet. Um, and so we do need to, to take this seriously um, and there, there does need to be resourcing uh, in order to, you know, set up these models all over Australia and so that it's not just, you know, pockets of rural areas and the metro areas that can access this. The reality is there's not enough for the women in metro areas that want this model either, demand outstrips supply, um, you know, many, many times over, even in the metropolitan areas. So even living in the metro area doesn't guarantee you access to continuity of midwifery care and ideally the way we'd like to see it is universal access which means that it's free um, offered you know through the way that the jurisdictions fund hospital care that you would be able to access continuity of midwifery care with a known midwife right throughout your pregnancy and nasa's example was fantastic because we have these what's called all risk models which really talks about it doesn't really matter what your pre-existing conditions or or what might bring you to pregnancy we are able to provide this continuity of care throughout your pregnancy um, your labour and birth and then also beyond into the postnatal period.
1: Indeed I just love Naz Campanella's story of within two hours of that uh, stick showing up the double line she was on the phone booking in <laughs> because she knew how rare those uh, those programs were that gave you continuity of care Let's check in with our mm-hmm. callers here on Life Matters I'm loving hearing your stories about the decisions that you made that you were really glad you'd been able to make and had made when you look back on your pregnancy and birthing experience. TJ's in Victoria. TJ what was the thing that stood out for you? Uh,
0: Well, we had our first daughter uh, two and a half years ago in my home country of New Zealand and the type of care we received there was really quite markedly different from what we're experiencing now with my partner at 40 weeks and two days today and waiting for the second baby to come um, here in Victoria. Um, I think there's been a couple of generations of feminist women and midwives in the system over there who really moved the dial quite a lot. Um, the level of respect that we received. Also, you're talking about continuity of care. Um, you're assigned a midwife from um, from the state all the way through the pregnancy, right through to six weeks after the birth, and, and including the birth. Um, that just seems like a no brainer. It's also, you just you end up with all of the things that your experts are talking about and. You know, over here, we've had things like my partner being just asked routinely by a receptionist. So are you having an induction or a C-section? Like, those were the only two options. Wow. Or an obstetrician just sort of really piling on what we thought took to be the pressure to have an episiosomy, if, the, if that's what's needed, or on a C-section, sort of right from the get-go, like at about the 20-week mark, you know, just talking about that and just going, hang on... Um, Can't we just learn a few things from our nearest neighbour? I mean, it really upsets me, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean that long tail sounds great too that that you have that six weeks of care after the birth because it can so much help to have someone who's seen what you've been through in the lead-up and during the birth and relate the challenges or experiences you might be having post-birth to to what happened then. TJ, that's a really interesting perspective. Thank you for your call. Miv's on the Gold Coast. Uh, Great to hear these stories from from right around Australia. Miv, welcome to you. Thank you. What happened for you?
9: Well, I think... Like a lot of first-time mums, I went into to have the birth of my first baby in a, and I had a very I- idealistic plan. I had essential oils and snacks and a lacy beige bralette to wear <laughs> and then I ended up actually having an unplanned home birth by myself at home and there was not an essential oil or a lacy bralette in sight and I actually... Because I was on my own until about the last 10 minutes um, when paramedics actually arrived, I didn't have anyone telling me what to do or poking me or prodding me. There was no sounds, no beeps, no hospital equipment, just me listening to music in my bedroom. And it was a really beautiful experience because I got to lean into my intuition and I just let my body do its thing and it just happened really easily. To the point where, yeah, it was. I was crowning in my bedroom on my own. And then, yeah, um, the paramedics arrived, which my mum called for me because she was my ride to get me to the airport, who didn't make it on time. Um, but anyway, um, <laughs> they got there and they said, here, get on this stretcher, we'll take you to the hospital. And I said, no, nah, I can't. And I got down on the ground and I had my little boy right there on the ground. And,
1: yeah. I'm obviously just glad that, that I trust him. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that, that is a really fascinating thing to hear because some people we listening to that and going, nope, horrific. I could not do that terrifying. But yeah, it sounds like for you it it was the perfect situation in some ways.
9: Well, I think I heard someone mention earlier um, agency and autonomy mm. and I think because I was in the driver's seat, although, it was an unusual and potentially dangerous situation. I didn't feel that at the time, and I just completely trusted myself, which resulted in a really um, energising, powerful experience in
1: the end. Well, it sounds to me like there's a, a resilient personality in there too, Miv, that probably played a role, but I'm so glad it worked out that way for you. Thanks for your call.
5: Thank you.
1: Thank you. Uh, Michael in Sydney, perhaps, will try you. Hi, Michael.
5: Yes, I'm glad. I'm sure my sister-in-law had a plan. She came down from my sister's wedding. Um, She was heavily pregnant, but she said she wasn't due for about five weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, The waters, well, we thought her waters broke, so we took her to a hospital, and they asked her how long, and she said another five weeks, and they sent her home. Okay. And on the morning of the wedding, it was clear that she was going to give birth. Well, she had strong contractions. So we we took, we we rang the doctor, and I think we rang an ambulance. In any case, um, it, 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 the baby started crowning, and uh, a doctor arrived in his slippers with a roll of instruments in a, a cloth, and he took one look, and he raced to the phone, because it was before, uh, mobile phones and rang the ambulance and then it's just as well he came because the cord was around the baby's neck <coughs> and he managed to pull the, the cord over and the baby was born elderly. Um and my sister-in-law after that sat up in bed and said that was okay, I think I'll have more and we were all <laughs> <laughs> and now for the wedding <laughs> And my wife said, I think I'll go and make tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: let's just calm the farm a bit and settle into this one. Oh, wow, Michael, that's amazing. Thank you. I'm just racking up these stories. I'll be thinking about them later. Jodie in Tasmania, I think we have you back now.
5: Hi. Hi. Hey.
1: You are going to talk about uh, access and, and who gets it.
10: Yeah, so I think it's really knowledge and postcode lottery. So you need to know that these care models exist and you need to live in a location um, where they're accessible. Um, I've just written a book, uh, The Complete Australian Guide to Pregnancy and Birth, and I work alongside Sophie Walker at Australian Birth Stories Podcast. So we've heard almost 400 stories from women. And I think what, you know, continuity of care is the answer, um, but I think it's also really important to let women and birthing people know that a positive birth experience is dependent on two things and research tells us that that's um, the ability to make informed choices so you need to be educated to make informed choices and that those choices are respected and supported by your care provider and I think Naz's story was a beautiful example of that Um, she'd done her research she knew what she wanted and then she'd spoken to her care providers about how that they could support her in that. And and that should be a discussion that all birthing people have. Um, and they should have the opportunity to have it with a care provider that they know and that they trust and that they've had the ability to form a, a good relationship with through pregnancy. Um, and, and that New Zealand model of care um, in that your caller from... Um, from Melbourne mentioned, they have exemplary postnatal care and in Australia that's really lacking. It's, we kind of have a cavernous void of healthcare in um, postpartum and we're seeing some women being discharged from hospital for six, maybe 12 hours after birth. And and I think that's really detrimental to breastfeeding um, to breastfeeding success and to mothers mental well-being and that support in Australia really needs to extend well into the postpartum period.
1: Yes indeed and it's just that continuity of care is such a big theme on our text line too. Aboriginal women have been working on culturally safe care for years says one person and it's one area the gap is starting to improve but they need more funding and recognition of course. Another says the truth is only about 10% of women booked to birth in Victoria can access midwifery continuity of care and it's mostly white middle class women who access this model. This despite report after review after research on and on informing us that this is gold standard care women are being badly ripped off says this person texting maternity services are grossly under resourced so many different perspectives coming through here and one person uh in geelong texts in her the decision she was happy with i stumbled across some lost information taking raspberry leaf tea in the last four weeks i had a four and a half hour labor oh, is that a good thing Good, glad it worked for you. Um, Our guest today, Carla Anderson, who's a principal clinical psychologist at the Perinatal Child and Family Hub, and Dr Zoe Bradfield, Senior Midwifery Research Fellow at Curtin University. Carla, in an ideal world, what sort of support network would I have around me to help during and after a pregnancy, those crucial early weeks?
3: I think it's a, it, it's like what we talk about with the village and when Naz was talking before about the individualised plan as well, I think that that's really important. It's going to be so different for each individual um, family in terms of what supports that they need and what supports that they want around them. But I think make, having, having a, a wraparound support that covers you know the physical, the mental, the emotional, the relational aspects of preparing for um, birthing and parenthood, I think is just so
1: important. Yes, indeed. That's certainly being borne out by the stories we're hearing today. Dr Zoe Bradfield, just quickly, um, birthing's changed a lot in Australia in the last few decades. Rates of first-time babies being induced and rates of caesareans have both almost doubled in the last 20 years. Is that a problem
2: Look, the re- the reality is, cesarean section for some women is life-saving surgery. So um, I think we should we should say state that from the outset. And and same too for for some inductions of labour for women with very high blood pressure or other conditions that need to be managed. But it's inconceivable to us uh, that uh, as a species we've survived for so long without these interventions yet, and yet they've doubled. What we've also not seen is a commensurate improvement in maternal mortality or morbidity. So what that data is showing us is that we've passed the point of where we may be improving care and possibly, you know, moving into the territory where we may be causing harm through these interventions. So I think it's, you know, it's not possible to say that for every single person a caesarean is not, not needed um, because that's just simply not true. Uh, but the reality is there is there is gross overuse of both caesarean section and of induction of labour uh, in, in our health system in Australia and also worldwide. Um, but yeah, we, we need urgent strategies to address this and that's why um, the variation in caesarean section between in different health sites around Australia. The caesarean section is the number one target on the National Atlas for Healthcare Variation um, and is hotly in the government's site in terms of working out just why some sites need a caesarean section rate of 60% and others are are sitting at around, you know, 27% um, Mm, and and everywhere in between.
1: Yeah, it's one of the things that uh, we definitely want to look at more. Dr Zoe Bradfield, Carla Anderson, thank you both so much for your time on Life Matters today.
2: Thank you. Thank you so
1: much. Dr Zoe Bradfield is a Senior Midwifery Research Fellow at Curtin University Carla Anderson's principal clinical psychologist at a business called the Perinatal Child and Family Hub. And just want to say, too, that I'm thinking of all the parents who've lost babies, too. I think of my own Arthur and Edwin today and every day. Up next on Life Matters, the small, beautiful, everyday motions of motherhood as remembered through a small, bright, precious object. This is RN. Are you an early career researcher or do you know someone who is? Then there's only a short time left to apply for the ABC Top 5. We're looking for enthusiastic scientists, humanities academics, artists and cultural researchers. This is the chance to spend two weeks with the ABC, learn how the media works and how to best communicate your research. Head online and check for eligibility. Search for ABC Top 5 for full details. Applications close midnight May the 14th. For Life in 500 Words, Lynn Groves remembers her mother's wedding ring and the hands that wore it.
11: My mother's wedding ring is yellow gold, plain, and so small in circumference that it barely fits on my little finger. I keep her ring now in a tiny hand-painted box on my dresser and look at it often to remind me of the woman she was, the mother she was and all that she did in her remarkable life. That ring was first slipped onto her finger on May 17, 1944, during her wedding to my father in England. It stayed on her hand for another 62 years, until she died of cancer in a hospice on the other side of the world. Shortly after her wedding, with a war still in progress, her husband's plane was shot down over Germany and she gave birth to their first son while my father remained a prisoner of war. In 1946, she travelled to Australia by ship with her infant son and many other war brides, six women to a cabin, all with difficult babies. She was reunited here with my father, who was by then somewhat changed and who would, during his lifetime, be bedeviled by his war experiences. Though her hands were small, They and her character were strong, her nature kind, loving, and courageous. Her hands stayed strong throughout their occasionally rocky marriage, through two more children, many displacements, several miscarriages, and serious illnesses. I remember her soothing touch with those magical hands, how she'd stroke my forehead if I was sick, wipe tears from my cheeks, hug me, and try to teach me to knit. I remember her holding my hand to cross a road or stroking me if i was frightened i remember sitting on the handlebars of her clunky old push bike when she picked me up from primary school and pedaled home her hands capably maneuvering over bumpy paths she was also a great cook i'd watch how her fingers could expertly lift and combine flour and butter for perfect pastry the way she could quickly efficiently pluck a chicken and chase me was one of its feet, while all the time she'd be laughing. The way her hands would deftly deal a deck of cards or carry heavy trays of tea and freshly baked cakes. The way her fingers could quickly buzz around a typewriter keyboard. The way she'd enthusiastically cradle a glass of champagne. The way she always loved each of her children and grandchildren with the same wonderful, magical, healing hands and generous heart. She was gregarious. She loved to dance, loved to laugh, and she remained brave and funny and stoic to the end. She held my hand when she was dying to assure me that I'd be alright, and said, promise you'll come and talk to me at the cemetery when I'm gone? So I do. I really miss those small, practical, unselfish, gentle hands. But each time I see her essence in that tiny, perfectly smooth, symmetrical wedding ring, my heart skips and I smile.
1: And I think you can hear the depth of Lynn Grove's love for her mum there. That story was produced by Michelle Weeks with sound engineering by Carrie Dell. And just a final text on birthing. Being high risk due to chronic illness might mean you can't have an alternative to hospital birth, but it doesn't mean you can't have a personal, powerful, positive birth. This Isadora says, I had my baby at 32 weeks after a surprising and intense vaginal birth that I'd never thought possible after having been prepped that I would need a caesarean at term. After a month in the NICU, I got to bring home the best baby in the world. Glad to hear it is Adora. Our national identity is built in part on the idea that we love sport and it can connect and empower us, divide us, fascinate us. But there are particular themes around sport that aren't often discussed in Australia. For example, what does it mean to play sport on Aboriginal land? Ellen van Nieuwen joins us next time on Life Matters. They're an award-winning writer of Munanjali, Yugamba and Dutch heritage. They'll tell us about their new book on many aspects of sport. I hope you can join me for that.